Glad you guys are back from the holidays. I hope you're glad. If you woke up this morning and you made it here, you get extra points with somebody somewhere because it was gray and cold outside, and this would have been an easy morning to sleep in. So thanks for being here. We appreciate it, and welcome. Um, We are actually getting ready to jump into a series called Truth in Art, Truth in Art. And uh, so we did this last year where we took a look at different popular songs because part of what we argue, part of what I believe, is that every piece of art um, is a truth claim or every piece of art is a, is a value statement. In other words, regardless of what you say you believe about the world, if you say it's meaningless, if you create a piece of art, music, literature, something that's visual, you're actually communicating some truth. And so let me give you a couple quick announcements um, or a couple quick examples. So uh, there's a musician, um, John Cage. And I think he's passed away now, but John Cage, his worldview was basically that life is meaningless, right? And that the only thing that is predictable in life is chaos, right? And so he actually created symphonic music that was based completely upon chaos. And so he would put together symphonies and put together pieces of music with absolutely no order whatsoever, part of what he was communicating through this symphonic uh, cacophony was essentially that there's nothing but chaos. Life is meaningless. There's only chaos, right? And the trick with that is that that's a truth claim. Like it's a value statement about reality, which is the only thing that exists is chaos. Life has no meaning, but it's still a truth claim via art, right? Uh, Maplethorpe was a photographer. Some of you are familiar with his work, but um, he was probably one of the early shock artists and he used photography as his medium. And so he would take pictures of all sort of disturbing images of various kinds. I'm not going to go into too many of them. But again, part of what he was communicating through his artwork is, uh, is that ultimately the most important thing in life is freedom and the freedom to choose, right? Freedom and the freedom to choose. Essentially, he also, not unlike um, John Cage, would have said that life is essentially meaningless except for the freedom that we have to express ourselves or to act as human beings. And so his, that's expressed in his artwork right? Um, Some of you have seen movies before with a very clear value statement or truth statement. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have ever seen Fight Club. Uh, Fight Club, I think, came out in maybe 1988, I'm sorry, 1998, 1999. But um, when I was a youth pastor in Gainesville, Georgia, I don't even think I'd heard of the movie, but I had two of my youth group kids come to church one Sunday night, and one kid had a black eye, and the other kid had a, you know, broken nose and a busted lip, and I was like, what, what have you guys been doing? And they said, oh, we were playing around and fell down the stairs. And I was like, oh, okay. What have you really been doing? Anyway, and um, so they said, well, there's this movie called Fight Club. And um, essentially, what's interesting is it's, I'm not recommending it to anybody. It's super harsh. Um, but it, but it's, a, it's a movie that has a meaning, right? It's a movie that has a message. And so in it, Brad Pitt's character, who, whose name is Tyler Durden, he's kind of a bad guy, he says this to this group of members of Fight Club. He says, listen up, maggots. You are not special. You're not a beautiful or unique snowflake. You're the same decaying organic matter as everything else. In other words, this is a mechanistic worldview. Life has no meaning. You're just dirt, right? You're just the product of, of evolution, essentially, is what is the message of that movie, right? So again, that's a, that's a truth claim. So all art is making truth claims. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at various, um, various films, various movies. Next week, we're going to be looking at Mad Max Fury Road, all right? So I don't know how many of you have seen that. Um, we'll talk more about it next week. I don't really recommend that you watch that. If you're over 18 and you want to, that's up to you. Uh, number two, we're going to be doing, uh, in contrast, the movie Inside Out, which I do recommend. It's really cute. Pixar, right? 
And then uh, a third movie we're going to be doing is a movie called Big Fish with Ewan McGregor, which is a little bit of an older film, but a great movie, one of my favorites. And then today we're going to be doing a movie called Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. Now, I'm going to give you a quick intro um, to Tree of Life. And, uh, and then I'll turn it over and we'll show you a clip in a moment. But Tree of Life won the Palm Door, uh, which is the, uh, the award for the best movie at the 2011 Cannes Film Festival in Cannes, France, right? And so obviously it was recognized by some of the most powerful movie critics in the world as the best movie of that year, right? And uh, first of all, what you need to know is that Tree of Life is a work of visual, auditory, and literary art, Right? So it's not so much Remember the Titans, right? It's not so much the Avengers, where it's this linear film, as much as it is almost a a work of art in and of itself. And so it's not easy to interpret. The first time many people watch it, they just look at it and they're like, there's really pretty pictures and pretty music, but I have no idea what is going on. That's okay, right? That's actually all right. Like so many works of art, part of what art does is actually evokes an emotion in you, or it might actually spur Uh, an opportunity for you to think about something more deeply. And if that's all that happens in this movie, that's fine. So first of all, it's a work of art. It's not, again, it's not a linear, you know, plot-driven film in in the typical sense. In The Tree of Life, Malick tackles such issues as family, love, death, suffering, and in particular, God's presence or absence in the midst of suffering, forgiveness, reconciliation, and shame. There's a great scene where um, Jack O'Brien, who uh, is a, played by an adult Sean Penn in the movie, but played by a child actor in the body of the film, there's a scene where he um, does something that is wrong, something that he feels ashamed of, and his mother, he's walking towards his mother, and he looks at her and he says, don't look at me. In other words, his shame is overpowering, right? So it's great, great themes in this movie. The primary theme of the movie, however, and again, I think this is Malik's thesis statement spoken through Jessica Chastain's character, is, uh, is this tension between nature and grace, nature and grace. Now, in the clip that I'm going to show you in just a moment, you're going to see any number of different characters. You're going to see Brad Pitt's character. He's Mr. O'Brien. And uh, you're going to see Jessica Chastain's character. This is Mrs. O'Brien. And then you're going to see Sean Penn, who's playing Jack. He's uh, a, a grown-up, um, one of their three grown-up sons, looking back at his life and the influence um, that his mother and his father have both had in sort of creating and forming in him what he believes to be true and what's valuable, what's right, and what's good. What's good. And part of what you see is him preparing to make a choice. Let's take a moment. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll show you a brief clip. Father, I thank you that you speak through your son, Jesus, that, um, that we can now look at creation and we can look at you, our heavenly father, through the lens of your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you spoke through um, and speak through your word. Uh, Father, I thank you that you also speak in a very different way through nature. I thank you that you speak through beauty and through art and through music. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that we would remain open to hearing you, however it is this morning, that you would communicate to us, that you would even draw us to yourself. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. taught us there are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. 
You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. Accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. Accepts insults and injuries. to please itself. Bless oh Lord, this Get others to please it too. Your loving and faithful service. Likes to lord it over them. Bless these boys. To have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it. When love is smiling through all things. that no one who loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. I will be true to you. Whatever comes. Alright, so again, I... I think it's very clear there that what we see is his thesis statement that there are two ways to live life. There's the way of nature and there's the way of grace. Again, I completely recommend the movie. Just have a cup of coffee and watch it before 9 p.m. because it definitely can be slow, but it's beautiful. Now, here's now Malik, the, uh, the director of the film. And by the way, thank you to Mike Bailey. He's the one that recommended this movie to me, I don't know, now three years ago, four years ago. Um, but Malik is an, is an Episcopalian, so he's, he is overtly a believer. And, um, and this movie, it's funny, when it won the palm, it simultaneously had cheers and boos because uh, of any number of different things, but not the least because of its Christian message, essentially. And, uh, and what's interesting is he talks about these two ways, the way of nature, the way of grace, and it, par- it parallels Scripture, again, because he's a believer so closely now, according to Paul, in the letter of Galatians, we see this parallel, and frankly, we see it throughout Jesus' um, teaching as well. But in Galatians chapter 5, in particular, we see Paul saying there are really two ways to live, and he doesn't necessarily call it the way of nature and the way of grace, but he, he talks about the way of the flesh, right, or the works of the flesh. And then he talks about the way uh, or the fruit of the Spirit or of grace in Malik's language. So let's turn this over really quickly to look at uh, chapter 5 of the book of Galatians. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 24. You've probably read these before, but you probably haven't thought about them so much in these terms. Verse 19 begins by saying this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And we'll talk about the common denominator and all of those in just a moment. 
Paul goes on to say, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do or continue living in such a way, who do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul is saying there's two ways to live, right? He's saying there's ultimately the way of nature, or in his language, the flesh, and then there's the way of grace, or in his language, the spirit, right? And so let's look very quickly at the two of these. Let's start off by looking at the way of the flesh, or in Malik's language, the way of nature, looking at verses 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, right? And Paul calls them works. And so if you've ever read this section of Galatians before, you might have asked, why does he call them works? You might have wondered why that is. But part of the reason he uses the language works of the flesh is because works expect to be paid, right? Works expect that someone owes them. And in in particular, what we see as Paul sort of outlines this list and we put together the rest of what Paul talks about in the New Testament, what Jesus talks about, part of what we see is that people who live according to the flesh believe very deeply that God owes them, right? That God owes them something, works. And not only does God owe them something, but the world owes them something, right? Their kids owe them something. Their spouse owes them something. Someone owes them something. Work implies indebtedness and expectation, right? And so it implies that, it implies, of getting, it implies controlling, it implies getting what I want. The way of the flesh or nature is thoroughly and deeply a self-interested and self-focused, self-glorifying way of seeing and interacting in the world. Does that make sense? Like the very foundational principle is that it's all about me and all about what I want, right? Getting what I want and avoiding what I don't want. It's the way of the self, it's the way of the flesh, it's self preservation, it's self-actualization. Um, John Piper, actually, who I don't quote a ton, although I actually think he's great, but um, I'm going to quote some of his um, writing on this because I think he actually said it very well. But Piper, in writing on Galatians chapter 5, says this, and I think it's going to be on the screen. Flesh is the old ego that is self-reliant and does not delight to yield to any authority or depend on any mercy. It craves the sensation of self-generated power and loves the praise of men. We've seen earlier that in its conservative form, it produces legalism, keeping rules by its own power for its own glory. This is a really helpful distinction, right? Because you read that big list of icky sins, and you think, well, that's not me, right? I'm I'm obviously living according to the way of grace, the way of the Spirit. But Paul says, watch out, and Piper says, watch out, because really what he's saying is there's there's a conservative manifestation uh, of living according to the way of nature. And it's, it's really the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? In other words, you seek control by being good. You seek control by keeping the rules. You try to have life go your way by working hard in an effort to manipulate God and your fellow human beings into serving himself or to serving you, right? Christianity, frankly, is loaded with people like this, right? Christianity is loaded with Pharisees. Christianity is loaded with legalists. It's loaded with people who basically are living according to the flesh. They're just using religion and God to do it, to make it all 
about them. And it's why so many people who have rejected Christianity say, I don't like Christians. They're judgmental. They're mean-spirited. They're just, you know, controlling and ultimately selfish. And you know what? They're right, right? Because a lot of us in this room, myself included, have been Pharisees, right? We've lived according to the flesh. We've just done it in a way that, it, that looks good. It looks cleaner on the outside, right? And so that's part of what Piper says here. He goes on to say this. He says, but here Paul opens the lens so we see that the flesh also in its more liberal form produces grossly immoral attitudes and acts, sexual immorality, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, and hateful, harmful tendencies, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, etc. The flesh is the proud and unsubmissive root of depravity in every human heart, which exalts itself subtly through the proud, self-reliant morality. That's moralism. It's religion, right? It's, uh, it's, it's legalism. It's what I was, frankly, throughout high school and probably most of college. So that, that's one way it manifests itself, or it flaunts itself blatantly through self-assertive, authority-despising immorality, right? So words like licentiousness, self-actualization, self-glorification, it manifests itself in either of those ways. In other words, the kind of heart that produces these vices is a heart that thinks of itself as creditor and everyone else as its debtors, right? In other words, the world owes me, God owes me, my wife owes me, my kids owe me, right? The world owes me, I'm entitled to it. The flesh is convinced of its own merit and expects God and man and nature to pay dues by giving the satisfaction it desires, the way of nature, right? The way of the flesh. Now, in the movie by Malik, Tree of Life, he, he creates a, a, really a contrast between Mr. O'Brien and Mr. O'Brien. So Mr. O'Brien is played by Brad Pitt. Mrs. O'Brien is played by Jessica Chastain. And in it, this tension of nature versus grace, uh, Brad Pitt's character, Mr. O'Brien, represents the way of nature. Now, it's not, a, it's not a complete analogy. He's not all bad as a father. But at the same time, Malik is using him to exemplify the way of nature. And here's some of the quotes from the movie. Here's what Mr. O'Brien says. If you want to succeed, you can't be too good, right? If you, if you want to succeed, you can't be too good, right? You, you take some of the stuff that maybe Christianity off, offers you as long as it works, but then you sort of employ the world stuff as long as it works, and you just do what works. It's pragmatism at the end of the day because it's really all about you. If you want to succeed, you can't be too good. He says this. He says, your mother is naive. It takes fierce will to get ahead in this world. If you're good, people will take advantage of you, right? In other words, you know, if, if the Bible teaches you to be good in some ways, that's great as long as it works. But the minute it lets other people take advantage of you, you need to choose self-reliance, right? He says this. He goes on to say, you have to control your own destiny. Tuscanini once recorded a piece 65 times, he says to his son. You know what he said when he finished? It could be better. Think about it. In other words, hard work, never give up over and over and over again. You're on this hamster wheel of life trying to control life to avoid what you don't want to get what you do want. He then goes on to say, you can't say I can't. You say I'm not done yet. In other words, there's no rest. There's only work. There's no grace. There's no mercy. Mr. O'Brien, his character is harsh and demanding towards his wife and toward his boys. He teaches them to fight. He's critical and scowling. He's controlling and he's dour. He has a short fuse, right? And he's got a, a wicked temper. He blames, he criticizes, he seeks power over the world and his wife and his family, and it's destroying him. And it's destroying the very people that he loves. 
after a tragedy in the, mood, in the movie, Mr. O'Brien is speaking to his wife. He hasn't allowed grace to enter into his life. And speaking again about his middle son after this moment of tragedy, he's confessing to his wife what he feels. And he says this, he says, once while playing the piano, I criticized the way he turned the page. All right, just think for a moment. Dad's out there, mom's out there. <clears throat> Once while playing the piano, I criticized the way he turned the page. I made him feel shame, my shame, right? Just let that sink in for a moment. As he begins to change, and the father does begin to change, he says, I wanted to be loved because I was great, a big man. I'm nothing. Look at the glory around us, trees, birds. I lived in shame. I dishonored it all, and I didn't notice the glory. I'm a foolish man, right? You see that? He's recognizing that he's chosen the way of the flesh. He's chosen the way of nature. And those who choose the way of nature, the way of the flesh, they want things their own way, in their own time, on their own terms. They manipulate or seek to control through power and through positioning. And in the end, they lose everything that they love, right? They realize, Mr. O'Brien realizes that it's, he's losing himself. He's losing those that he loves. The way of nature leads to death and destruction. The way of the flesh promises fulfillment, right? It promises flourishing, right? It, it promises everything in terms of your humanity. But in the end, instead of becoming more human, we become less human when we follow the way of the flesh, the way of nature, right? It promises flourishing, but it provides destruction. That's part of Malik's point. It's definitely part of Paul's point. It's definitely part of Jesus' point as he speaks in Scripture. And there are any of us in this room that are on either of these trajectories at this very moment, but the way of the flesh leads to destruction. It will not give you what you want it to give you, right? Then Malik in the film, Paul, in his passage of Galatians, then talks about the way of grace, or in Paul's language, the way of the Spirit, right? Listen to the, the words that Paul writes in verses 22 through 24 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if the way of the flesh is marked by selfishness, if the way of the flesh is marked by self-glorification, if the way of the flesh is marked by self-actualization, then the way of the Spirit is actually marked by selflessness, by other-centeredness, right? The way of the Spirit is marked by a profound awareness of God's mercy and a profound awareness of grace. Does that make sense? It's, it's opposite, right? Whereas the way of the flesh is all about self-centeredness, self-glorification. The way of the Spirit is all about God's glory and what's good for others, right? It's two totally different paths. Back to Piper and he, as he writes on this. Piper says this, The mentality behind the fruit of the Spirit is the mentality of faith depending upon grace. People who bear the fruit of the Spirit know they're worthy only of condemnation. They know that the only pay they can earn is the wrath of God. If this sounds harsh, it's because Piper is probably referring to the book of Romans where we're told, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because part of what Piper realizes and what, part of what Paul realizes and part of what Malik realizes is that, again, what we have essentially tried to do in life, whether we've been good overtly 
or bad overtly is we're still trying to do the same thing. We're trying to get God's stuff without him, right? We're trying to have all of the blessings of the world, but without the one that actually gives those blessings. And as a result, part of what Paul says here and part of what Piper hints to is that what we deserve is to be separated from God. He goes on to write, therefore, they have turned away from self-reliance and look only to mercy in Christ who loved and gave himself for us. They do not expect anyone to be their debtor because of their worth. Any satisfaction will be a free gift of grace. They bank on the mercy of God and entrust themselves to his spirit for help. And out of that mentality of faith, depending on grace, grows not works, but fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So again, if the way of nature or the flesh exercises control for self, the way of grace exercises submission to God in gratitude for grace, mercy, and ultimately for God's glory, not our own. Does that make sense? They're two totally different ways. Now again, Mrs. O'Brien in the movie Tree of Life represents the way of grace. There's this contrast. And in the same way that Mr. O'Brien isn't a perfect representation of utter selfishness, she's also not a perfect representation of complete purity and goodness. But again, she represents that in Malik's movie. Here's what she says. She says, the nuns taught us that there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself, accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. Accepts insults and injuries. Sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too, likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy. When all the world is shining around it, when love is smiling through all things, they taught us that no one who loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. I will be true to you, she says. Whatever comes, my hope, my God, right? right? This is the way of grace. So some of you this morning know the way of grace. You've chosen the way of the Spirit. You've experienced the fruit of the Spirit. You've experienced the freedom of God's work in your heart. You've experienced the rest that Jesus promised. You've experienced the joy of allowing God's glory and the good of others to be your primary concern. It's not that you don't care about yourself, right? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. It's okay for us to love ourselves, but we've experienced the weightlessness and the joy of the way of the Spirit. And in the same way, there are others of you in this room this morning who have experienced the weight and the heaviness and the exhaustion of the way of the flesh, right? You've felt just the hamster wheel of living that life, and you've felt and experienced the unfulfilled promises of the way of the flesh. Jesus talked about these two ways over and over again, right? He talked about them in many different metaphors. So he talks about sheep, and he talks about goats. He talks about tax collectors and sinners, and he talks about Pharisees. He talks about those who know that they're sick versus those people who actually think that they're healthy, right? He talks about wide gates and narrow gates. He talks about lost, and he talks about the found, and there'll be various times in your life where you'll be faced with a choice of which way to choose, and this morning is actually one of those times where you're faced with that choice. Which way will I choose? Jesus gives you all the metaphors. Paul gives you the metaphors. Malik gives you the metaphors, right? You can be faced with this choice of which way am I going to choose? 
Now, in the movie, Sean's par- uh, adult character, um, the grown-up Jack O'Brien, he's looking back over his life. And so he's become a wealthy um, and very successful architect. And toward the end of the movie, what you see is you see him waking up in this incredibly beautiful modern home, right, with these, you know, concrete and glass, and he's got a beautiful wife. But what we see is that when he wakes up in the morning, he turns away from his wife, and she turns away from him. And, uh, and her face is cold and stone, and his face is cold and stone. There's no grace in their relationship, Right? And then progressively what ends up happening is we see the outworking of him looking back at his life, looking at his father who represented the sort of this way of life of you got to get while the getting is good and it's all about you versus his mother. And he progressively begins to see that he's being faced with a choice even as this adult son, right? And so what ends up happening toward the very end of the movie is we see this character played by Sean Penn, Jack O'Brien. He's standing in the middle of a desert and there's a wooden door in the middle of the desert. And on the other side of the door, he sees his mother and he sees his brother and he sees his loved ones. And you hear Malik speaking in under uh, hushed tones. You hear him saying this, I didn't know how to name you then, but I see it was you. Always you were calling me. And then we hear Jack O'Brien's character say, brother, mother, it was they who led me to your door. In other words, He's faced with a choice of whether or not to choose the way of the spirit, right, or the way of the flesh. Maybe a a less poetic way of saying it from Alec would have been, he's faced with a decision whether to turn his life over to God completely and say, my life is yours. For my good, for your glory, whatever comes, maybe even in the words of the character that uh, is played by Mrs. O'Brien, where she says, I will be true to you, whatever comes, my hope, my God. He's faced with a choice. This morning, you're faced with a choice too. And that choice is a, is a choice that I don't know how many times you get to make it throughout the course of your life, but I think what I would ask you this morning is for those of you in this room, there are really two, two groups of you. There's one group who have, who have chosen the way of the Spirit. You've turned your life over to God. You've experienced the rest that God can offer you. There are others in this room who know without a shadow of a doubt that you're living according to the way of nature, the way of the flesh, that it's all about you. And I would simply tell you this, is that God invites you, right? God invites you to respond to who he is. He invites you to choose to follow him, to be his daughter and son. It's where Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because, you know, my burden is easy and light. You'll find rest for your souls, right? And so the invitation today is to choose which way you'll follow. Let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, not only the parables of your son Jesus who over and over again paint the choice between these two ways. I thank you for Paul and his um, description of these two ways. Father, I thank you for uh, Malik even in laying out in front of us these two ways of living. And Father, I pray that your spirit would be active in the people of Seven Hills Fellowship and the people that are in this room this morning. Father, I pray that you would draw us to yourself um, Not that we might manipulate you into blessing us, but that we might simply trust you as our good, good Father who knows what's best for us, who wants what's best for us, and who amazingly desires to give us rest. Father, please, through the power of your Spirit, draw me, uh, draw my family, draw the people of Seven Hills Fellowship into this way of grace, the way of your Spirit. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.